0: Welcome to Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, a story of tragedy, adventure, and redemption that begins with a life-changing decision made by a young sailor in a moment of crisis. This podcast presents the text of Lord Jim as read from the original publication, available through Project Gutenberg. You can follow along in the text by clicking the link in our show notes. This is our ninth installment of Lord Jim, Which includes chapters 21 through 23 for those following along in the text. Weekly episodes are released each Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe. With each episode, we recommend an article available via Nutting Library's electronic resources that provides insights on aspects of the novel, and we are also sharing details about the historical context at the time of its publication via our social media accounts. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this ninth installment of Lord Jim. CHAPTER Twenty-One. I don't suppose any of you have ever heard of Patisson, Marlow resumed, after a silence occupied in the careful lighting of a cigar. It does not matter. There's many a heavenly body in the lot crowding upon us of a night that mankind has never heard of, it being outside the sphere of its activities and of no earthly importance to anybody but to the astronomers who are paid to talk learnedly about its composition, weight, path. The irregularities of its conduct, the aberrations of its light, a sort of scientific scandal-mongering. Thus with Patazan. It is referred to knowingly in the inner-government circles in Batavia, especially as to its irregularities and aberrations, and it was known by name to some few, very few, in the mercantile world. Nobody, however, had been there, and I suspect no one desired to go there in person, just as an astronomer, I should fancy, would strongly object to being transported into a distant heavenly body where, parted from his earthly emoluments, he would be bewildered by the view of an unfamiliar heavens. However, neither heavenly bodies nor astronomers have anything to do with Patterson. It was Jim who went there. I only meant you to understand that, had Stein arranged to send him into a star of the fifth magnitude, the change could not have been greater. He left his earthly failings behind him and what sort of reputation he had. And there was a totally new set of conditions for his imaginative faculty to work upon. Entirely new, entirely remarkable. And he got hold of them in a remarkable way. Stein was the man who knew more about Patisson than anybody else. More than was known in the government circles, I suspect. I have no doubt he had been there, either, in his butterfly-hunting days or later on, when he tried in his incorrigible way to season with a pinch of romance the fattening dishes of his commercial kitchen. There were very few places in the archipelago he had not seen in the original dusk of their being before light, and even electric light, had been carried into them for the sake of better morality, and, and, well, the greater profit too. It was at breakfast of the morning following our talk about Jim that he mentioned the place, after I had quoted poor Briarly's remark, "'Let him creep twenty feet underground and stay there.' He looked up at me with interested attention, as though I had been a rare insect. "'This could be done, too,' he remarked, sipping his coffee. "'Bury him in some sort,' I explained. "'One doesn't like to do it, of course, but it would be the best thing, seeing what he is.' "'Yes, he is young,' Stein mused. "'The youngest human being now in existence,' I affirmed. "'Sean, there's Patisan,' he went on in the same tone, "'and the woman is dead now.' he added incomprehensibly. Of course, I don't know that story. I can only guess that once before Patisan had been used as a grave for some sin, transgression, or misfortune. It is impossible to suspect Stein. The only woman that had ever existed for him was the Malay girl he called my wife the princess, or, more rarely, in moments of expansion, the mother of my Emma. Who was the woman he had mentioned in connection with Patisan? I can't say, But from his allusions, I understand she had been an educated and very good-looking Dutch Malay girl with a tragic or perhaps only a pitiful history, whose most painful part, no doubt, was her marriage with a Malacca Portuguese who had been clerk in some commercial house in the Dutch colonies. I gathered from Stein that this man was an unsatisfactory person in more ways than one, all being more or less indefinite and offensive. It was solely for his wife's sake that Stein had appointed him manager of Stein & Co.'s trading post in Patazan, But commercially, the arrangement was not a success, at any rate, for the firm, and now the woman had died. Stein was disposed to try another agent there. The Portuguese, whose name was Cornelius, considered himself a very deserving but ill-used person, entitled by his abilities to a better position. This man Jim would have to relieve. "'But I don't think he will go away from the place,' remarked Stein. "'That has nothing to do with me. "'It was only for the sake of the woman that I—' "'But as I think there is a daughter left, I shall let him, if he likes to stay, keep the old house.'" Patasan is a remote district of a native-ruled state, and the chief settlement bears the same name. At a point on the river about forty miles from the sea, where the first houses come into view— There can be seen rising above the level of the forests the summits of two steep hills, very close together and separated by what looks like a deep fissure, the cleavage of some mighty stroke. As a matter of fact, the valley between is nothing but a narrow ravine. The appearance from the settlement is of one irregularly conical hill split in two, and with the two halves leaning slightly apart. On the third day after the full, the moon, as seen from the open space in front of Jim's house, He had a very fine house in the native style when I visited him, rose exactly behind these hills, its diffused light at first throwing the two masses into intensely black relief, and then the nearly perfect disk, glowing ruddily, appeared gliding upwards between the sides of the chasm till it floated away above the summit, as if escaping from a yawning grave in gentle triumph. Wonderful effect, said Jim by my side. Worth seeing, is it not? And this question was put with a note of personal pride that made me smile, as though he had had a hand in regulating that unique spectacle. He had regulated so many things in patisson things that would have appeared as much beyond his control as the motions of the moon and the stars. It was inconceivable. That was the distinctive quality of the part into which Stein and I had tumbled him unwittingly, with no other notion than to get him out of the way, out of his own way, be it understood. That was our main purpose though i own i might have had another motive which had influenced me a little i was about to go home for a time and it may be i desired more than i was aware of myself to dispose of him to dispose of him you understand before i left i was going home and he had come to me from there with his miserable trouble and his shadowy claim like a man panting under a burden in a mist i cannot say i had ever seen him distinctly not even to this day, after I had my last view of him. But it seemed to me that the less I understood, the more I was bound to him in the name of that doubt which is the inseparable part of our knowledge. I did not know so much more about myself. And then, I repeat, I was going home, to that home distant enough, for all its hearthstones to be like one hearthstone, by which the humblest of us has the right to sit. We wander in our thousands over the face of the earth, the illustrious and the obscure, earning beyond the seas our fame, our money, or only a crust of bread. But it seems to me that for each of us going home must be like going to render an account. We return to face our superiors, our kindred, our friends, those whom we obey and those whom we love, but even they who have neither, the most free, lonely, irresponsible and bereft of ties. Even those for whom home holds no dear face, no familiar voice, even they have to meet the spirit that dwells within the land, under the sky, in its air, in its valleys, and on its rises, in its fields, in its waters and its trees. A mute friend, judge, and inspirer. Say what you like, to get its joy, to breathe its peace, to face its truth, one must return with a clear conscience. All this may seem to you sheer sentimentalism, And indeed, very few of us have the will or the capacity to look consciously upon the surface of familiar emotions. There are the girls we love, the men we look up to, the tenderness, the friendships, the opportunities, the pleasures. But the fact remains that you must touch your reward with clean hands, lest it turn to dead leaves, to thorns in your grasp. I think it is lonely, without a fireside or an affection they may call their own, those who return not to a dwelling but to the land itself to meet its disembodied, eternal, and unchangeable spirit. It is those who understand best its severity, its saving power, the grace of its secular right to our fidelity, to our obedience. Yes, few of us understand, but we all feel it, though, and I say all without exception, because those who do not feel do not count. Each blade of grass has its spot on earth whence it draws its life, its strength, And so is man rooted to the land from which he draws his faith together with his life. I don't know how much Jim understood, but I know how he felt. He felt confusedly but powerfully, the demand of some such truth or some such illusion. I don't care how you call it, there is so little difference, and the difference means so little. The thing is that, in virtue of his feeling, he mattered. He would never go home now. Not he, never, Had he been capable of picturesque manifestations, he would have shuddered at the thought, and made you shudder, too. But he was not of that sort, though he was expressive enough in his way. Before the idea of going home, he would grow desperately stiff and immovable, with lowered chin and pouted lips, and with those candid blue eyes of his glowering darkly under a frown, as if before something unbearable, as if before something revolting. There was imagination in that hard skull of his, over which the thick clustering hair fitted like a cap. As to me, I have no imagination. I would be more certain about him today if I had, and I do not mean to imply that I figured to myself the spirit of the land uprising above the white cliffs of Dover to ask me what I, returning with no bones broken, so to speak, had done with my very young brother. I could not make such a mistake. I knew very well he was of those about whom there is no inquiry. I had seen better men go out, disappear, vanish utterly, without provoking a sound of curiosity or sorrow. The spirit of the land, as becomes the ruler of great enterprises, is careless of innumerable lives. Woe to the stragglers! We exist only in so far as we hang together. He had straggled in a way, he had not hung on. But he was aware of it with an intensity that made him touching, just as a man's more intense life makes his death more touching than the death of a tree. I happened to be handy, and I happened to be touched. That's all there is to it. I was concerned as to the way he would go out. It would have hurt me if, for instance, he had taken to drink. The earth is so small that I was afraid of, some day, being waylaid by a blear eyed, swollen faced, besmirched loafer with no soles to his canvas shoes and with a flutter of rags about the elbows, who, on the strength of old acquaintance, would ask for a loan of five dollars. You know the awful jaunty bearing of those scarecrows coming to you from a decent past, the rasping careless voice, the half-averted impudent glances, those meetings more trying to a man who believes in the solidarity of our lives than the sight of an impenitent deathbed to a priest. That, to tell you the truth, was the only danger I could see for him and for me. But I also mistrusted my want of imagination. It might even come to something worse. In some way, it was beyond my powers of fancy to foresee. He wouldn't let me forget how imaginative he was. And your imaginative people swing farther in any direction, as if given a longer scope of cable in the uneasy anchorage of life. They do. They take to drink, too. It may be I was belittling him by such a fear. How could I tell? Even Stein could say no more than that he was romantic. I only knew he was one of us. And what business had he to be romantic? I am telling you so much about my own instinctive feelings and bemused reflections, because there remained so little to be told of him. I only knew he was one of us. And what business had he to be romantic? I am telling you so much about my own instinctive feelings and bemused reflections because there remains so little to be told of him. He existed for me, and after all it is only through me that he exists for you. I've led him out by the hand, I have paraded him before you. Were my commonplace fears unjust? I won't say, even now. You may be able to tell better, since the proverb has it that the onlookers see most of the game. At any rate, they were superfluous. He did not go out, not at all. On the contrary, he came on wonderfully, came on straight as a die and in excellent form, which he showed that he could stay as well as spurt. I ought to be delighted, for it is a victory in which I had taken my part, but I am not so pleased as I would have expected to be. I ask myself whether his rush had really carried him out of that mist in which he loomed interesting, if not very big, with floating outlines a straggler yearning inconsolably for his humble place in the ranks. And besides, the last word is not said, probably shall never be said. Are not our lives too short for that full utterance which through all our stammerings is of course our only and abiding intention? I have given up expecting those last words, whose ring, if they could only be pronounced, would shake both heaven and earth. There is never time to say our last word, the last word of our love, of our desire, Faith, remorse, submissions, revolt. The heaven and the earth must not be shaken, I suppose, at least not by us who know so many truths about either. My last words about Jim shall be few. I affirm he had achieved greatness, but the thing would be dwarfed in the telling, or rather in the hearing. Frankly, it is not my words that I mistrust, but your minds. I could be eloquent were I not afraid you fellows had starved your imaginations to feed your bodies. I do not mean to be offensive, it is respectable to have no illusions, and safe and profitable and dull. Yet you too, in your time, must have known the intensity of life, that light of glamour created in the shock of trifles, as amazing as the glow of sparks struck from a cold stone, and as short-lived, alas. CHAPTER Twenty-Two. The conquest of love, honour, men's confidence, the pride of it, the power of it, are fit materials for a heroic tale. Only our minds are struck by the externals of such a success, and to Jim's successes there were no externals. Thirty miles of forest shut it off from the sight of an indifferent world, and the noise of the white surf along the coast overpowered the voice of fame. The stream of civilization, as if divided on a headland a hundred miles north of patisson branches east and southeast, leaving its plains and valleys, its old trees, and its old mankind, neglected and isolated, such as an insignificant and crumbling islet between the two branches of a mighty devouring stream. You find the name of the country pretty often in collections of old voyages. The seventeenth-century traders went there for pepper, because the passion for pepper seemed to burn like a flame of love in the breast of Dutch and English adventurers about the time of James I. Where wouldn't they go for pepper? For a bag of pepper, they would cut each other's throats without hesitation, and would forswear their souls, of which they were so careful otherwise. The bizarre obstinacy of that desire made them defy death in a thousand shapes, the unknown seas, the loathsome and strange diseases, wounds, captivity, hunger, pestilence, and despair. It made them great, by heavens, it made them heroic, and it made them pathetic, too, in their craving for trade, with the inflexible death levying its toll on young and old. It seems impossible to believe that mere greed could hold men to such a steadfastness of purpose, to such a blind persistence in endeavor and sacrifice. And indeed, those who adventured their persons and lives risked all they had for a slender reward. They left their bones to lie bleaching on distant shores, so that wealth might flow to the living at home. To us, their less tried successors, they appear magnified, not as agents of trade but as instruments of a recorded destiny, pushing out into the unknown in obedience to an inward voice, to an impulse beating in the blood, to a dream of the future. They were wonderful, and it must be owned they were ready for the wonderful. They recorded it complacently in their sufferings, in the aspect of the seas, in the customs of strange nations, in the glory of splendid rulers. In Patizan they had found lots of pepper, and had been impressed by the magnificence and the wisdom of the Sultan. But somehow, after a century of checkered intercourse, the country seems to drop gradually out of the trade. Perhaps the pepper had given out. Be it as it may, nobody cares for it now. The glory has departed, the Sultan is an imbecile youth with two thumbs on his left hand and an uncertain and beggarly revenue extorted from a miserable population and stolen from him by his many uncles. This of course I have from Stein. He gave me their names and a short sketch of the life and character of each. He was as full of information about native states as an official report, but infinitely more amusing. He had to know. He traded in so many and in some districts, as in Patasan, for instance. His firm was the only one to have an agency by special permit from the Dutch authorities. The government trusted his discretion, and it was understood that he took all the risks. The men he employed understood that too, but he made it worth their while, apparently. He was perfectly frank with me over the breakfast table in the morning. As far as he was aware, the last news was thirteen months old, he stated precisely, utter insecurity for life and property was the normal condition. There were in Patasan antagonistic forces, and one of them was the Raja Alang, the worst of the sultan's uncles, the governor of the river, who did the extorting and the stealing and ground down to the point of extinction the country-born Malays, who, utterly defenseless, had not even the resource of emigrating, for indeed, as Stein remarked, where could they go, how could they get away? No doubt they did not even desire to get away. The world, which is circumscribed by lofty impassable mountains, had been given into the hand of the high-born, and this Raja they knew, he was of their own royal house. I had the pleasure of meeting the gentleman later on. He was a dirty, little, used-up old man with evil eyes and a weak mouth who swallowed an opium pill every two hours, and in defiance of common decency wore his hair uncovered and falling in wild, stringy locks about his wizened, grimy face. When giving audience, he would clamber upon a sort of narrow stage erected in a hall like a ruinous barn with a rotten bamboo floor, through the cracks of which you could see, twelve or fifteen feet below, the heaps of refuse and garbage of all kinds lying under the house. That is where and how he received us when, accompanied by Jim, I paid him a visit of ceremony. There were about forty people in the room, and perhaps three times as many in the great courtyard below. There was constant movement, coming and going, pushing and murmuring at our backs. A few youths in gay silks glared from the distance. The majority, slaves and humble dependents, were half naked, in ragged sarongs, dirty with ashes and mud-stains. I had never seen Jim look so grave, so self-possessed, in an impenetrable, impressive way. In the midst of these dark-faced men, his stalwart figure in white apparel, the gleaming clusters of his fair hair, seemed to catch all the sunshine that trickled through the cracks in the closed shutters of that dim hall, with its walls of mats and a roof of thatch. He appeared like a creature not only of another kind, but of another essence, Had they not seen him come up in a canoe, they might have thought he had descended upon them from the clouds. He did, however, come in a crazy dugout, sitting, very still and with his knees together for fear of overturning the thing, sitting on a tin box, which I had lent him, nursing on his lap a revolver of the navy pattern, presented by me on parting, which, through an interposition of providence, or through some wrong-headed notion that was just like him, or else from sheer instinctive sagacity he had decided to carry unloaded. That's how he ascended the Patazan River. Nothing could have been more prosaic and more unsafe, more extravagantly casual, more lonely. Strange, this fatality would cast the complexion of a flight upon all his acts, of impulsive unreflecting desertion of a jump into the unknown. It is precisely the casualness of it that strikes me most. Neither Stein nor I had a clear conception of what might be on the other side when we, metaphorically speaking, took him up and hove him over the wall with scant ceremony. At the moment I merely wished to achieve his disappearance. Stein, characteristically enough, had a sentimental motive. He had a notion of paying off, in kind I suppose, the old debt he had never forgotten. Indeed, he had been all his life especially friendly to anybody from the British Isles. His late benefactor, it is true, was a Scot, even to the length of being called Alexander MacNeil, And Jim came from a long way south of the Tweed, but at the distance of six or seven thousand miles, Great Britain, though never diminished, looks foreshortened enough, even to its own children, to rob such details of their importance. Stein was excusable, and his hinted intentions were so generous that I begged him most earnestly to keep them secret for a time. I felt that no consideration of personal advantage should be allowed to influence Jim, that not even the risk of such influence should be run. We had to deal with another sort of reality. He wanted a refuge, and a refuge at the cost of danger should be offered him, nothing more. Upon every other point I was perfectly frank with him, and I even, as I believed at the time, exaggerated the danger of the undertaking. As a matter of fact, I did not do it justice. His first day in Patassan was nearly his last would have been his last if he had not been so reckless or so hard on himself and had condescended to load that revolver. I remember, as I unfolded our precious scheme for his retreat, how his stubborn but weary resignation was gradually replaced by surprise, interest, wonder, and by boyish eagerness. This was a chance he had been dreaming of. He couldn't think how he merited that I—he would be shot if he could see what he owed. And it was Stein, Stein the merchant, who— But of course it was me he had to— I cut him short. He was not articulate, and his gratitude caused me inexplicable pain. I told him that if he owed this chance to anyone especially, it was to an old Scot of whom he had never heard, who had died many years ago, of whom little was remembered besides a roaring voice and a rough sort of honesty. There was really no one to receive his thanks. Stein was passing on to a young man the help he had received in his own young days. And i had done no more than to mention his name upon this he colored and twisting a bit of paper in his fingers he remarked bashfully that i had always trusted him i admitted that such was the case and added after a pause that i wished he had been able to follow my example you think i don't he asked uneasily and remarked in a mutter that one had to get some sort of show first Then, brightening up, and in a loud voice, he protested he would give me no occasion to regret my confidence, which, which. "'Do not misapprehend,' I interrupted. "'It is not in your power to make me regret anything.' There would be no regrets, but if there were, it would be altogether my own affair. On the other hand, I wished him to understand clearly that this arrangement, this, this experiment, was his own doing. He was responsible for it, and no one else.' "'Why? Why?' he stammered. "'This is the very thing that I—' I begged him not to be dense, and he looked more puzzled than ever. He was in a fair way to make life intolerable to himself. "'Do you think so?' he asked, disturbed, but in a moment added confidently. "'I was going on, though, was I not?' It was impossible to be angry with him. I could not help a smile, and told him that in the old days people who went on like this were on the way of becoming hermits in a wilderness.' "'Hermits be hanged,' he commented with engaging impulsiveness. "'Of course he didn't mind a wilderness.' "'I was glad of it,' I said. "'That was where he would be going to. "'He would find it lively enough, I ventured to promise.' "'Yes, yes,' he said keenly. "'He had shown a desire,' I continued inflexibly, "'to go out and shut the door after him.' "'Did I?' he interrupted in a strange access of gloom "'that seemed to envelop him,' From head to foot like the shadow of a passing cloud he was wonderfully expressive after all wonderfully did i he repeated bitterly you can't say i made much noise about it and i can keep it up too only confound it you show me a door very well pass on i struck in i could make him a solemn promise that it would be shut behind him with a vengeance his fate whatever it was would be ignored because the country, for all its rotten state, was not judged ripe for interference. Once he got in, it would be for the outside world as though he had never existed. He would have nothing but the soles of his two feet to stand upon, and he would have first to find his ground at that. Never existed, that's it, by Jove, he murmured to himself. His eyes, fastened upon my lips, sparkled. If he had thoroughly understood the conditions, I concluded— He had better jump into the first Gary he could see and drive on to Stein's house for his final instructions. He flung out of the room before I had fairly finished speaking. Joining us now to talk about this section of the text and provide an article recommendation is Lauren Gargani, Library Director at Maine Maritime Academy. Hi Lauren, welcome back.
1: Hi, Anne. How are you?
0: Doing well, thanks. What article do you
1: have for us today? Well, today we don't actually have an article. Ooh, what do we have? I have brought you an entire book and I've actually brought you an ebook that you can access from anywhere with your Maine Maritime Academy credentials.
0: Oh, that sounds pretty useful. Yes, I'm excited. So what is this book? Why have you brought it to us?
1: So, you may be familiar with the work of the scholar, Edward Said.
0: Yeah, I think we linked to one of his texts in a previous episode.
1: All right. Did you know that he wrote an entire book about Joseph Conrad? I did not. That's awfully relevant. Yes. So, Said's first published book from all the way back in 1966 is called Joseph Conrad and the Fiction of Autobiography. What does he have to say so um i (laughs) i understand that for our listeners this represents a really deep dive and i'm going to say very clearly this is not entirely about lord jim but i think that anybody looking to really understand conrad would really enjoy the chance to um read this book and it's going to tell us a lot about conrad through the lens primarily of his shorter fiction and his letters but um this book i think you know in my understanding also kind of allowed saeed to think through what eventually became the groundwork for his work on orientalism and his book of that name so i think a lot of those ideas start to take shape here and you know the fact that it's about conrad um it sounds like you've been noticing some some issues with the text as you've been reading it.
0: Yeah, I have been. So I'm glad that you're bringing us some resources to kind of help us work through that. Um, I know in this particular uh, leg of the story and of the journey uh, with Jim, we're, we're about to see, and actually just the next chapter that you haven't heard yet, a pretty um, concerning, description and caricature of the captain of a vessel that Jim's going to board um, that really plays upon a lot of racist tropes um, in describing somebody who is of Asian descent. Um, and that that certainly caught my eye in this particular reading. But even what we've already heard in this segment about the fictional island of Patterson, um, which it seems to really be identified as uh, something that has been um, colonized to some extent, or at least used by the Dutch um, in their attempts to get spices, um, but that it's also really seen as kind of out of this world, out of civilization, um, repeated references to um, a way to effectively bury somebody without their being dead, to remove them from civilization. And all of that is, you know, not a great way of describing an entire civilization in its own right or a group of people um, or an island that may have been mistreated in the Dutch attempt to get spices, which so many
1: were. So that those are some really interesting examples from the text. And, you know, there's a lot to think about here. And, you know, as I'm reading a little bit about this book by Saeed, I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, he's focused on autobiography. And, you know, he's talking about Conrad's letters about his time in the Congo. And, you know, Conrad is someone who saw quite a bit of the world. But his readers, not, you know, not necessarily the case. Um, there were a lot of people at that point. There still are a lot of people who haven't traveled widely and are dependent on descriptions of other places from, you know, the media they consume or the books that they read. Yeah, I, I think that's
0: really important to consider. And, and I think sometimes the language of the writing is it sticks out to me because it's not the current language that we would use about people. Um, yeah, I I don't think that a modern writer um, or a kind of a modern version of Conrad would necessarily be referring to people as half-castes. Um, but a lot of that language is much less of the issue than how he really is describing people um, and maybe being quite condescending toward them or making them into a caricature. And that's part of the reason that those words have ended up being um, inappropriate at this point, because they've accreted some of that meaning over time. And as hopefully we improve in our own uh, interactions with the world, we move on to some different words, even if those words didn't necessarily mean exactly that at that time, um, or perhaps did in mm-hmm. some situations. Um, but I can see that people who hadn't traveled widely would, you know, maybe take this at face value and imagine these people in a very particular way.
1: Definitely. And, you know, that's why I really wanted to go back to, you know, back to the 60s and back to, you know, the person who really brought this understanding of Orientalism to the discourse and. You know, there's a fantastic interview with Saeed that I found that we can link to the transcript because he talks a little bit about, you know, just what that meant for a lot of Western art, um, and that includes visual media as well as literature, to have these portrayals of the East and to really create this sort of, he calls it one of the he says one of the problems with orientalism is that it creates an image outside of history of something that is placid and still and eternal which is simply contradicted by the fact of history in one sense it's a creation of you might say an ideal other for europe so mm-hmm. these depictions have a really clear function in that you know they allow these writers and artists to kind of contrast the West that their readers are familiar with, with this, you know, not accurate, but really easily recognizable because of how much it's been reinforced in art um, sense of the East. Yeah, well, and we see that so specifically in this leg of our
0: story, uh, as we're looking at Jim refusing to go home. He won't go home. He can't handle home. He needs something other. He needs something um, that will kind of consume him or bury him so that he doesn't have to face um, the consequences of his action with the people that he ultimately trusts and loves. Um, And that is really concerning when, if one of those is home, safe, connection, love, trust, and the other is this eastern island of um, entire otherness um almost you know being depicted as quite savage um as a jungle as you know some a place that nobody knows about and of course people there know about it but not the people that jim or uh, marlo are concerned with
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah this uh this interview with saeed he mentions you know it had He says, the more I looked, the more I saw that this was really quite consistent with itself, referring to, you know, this picture of the East as a mysterious place full of secrets and monsters, as he calls it. And he says, even if they had been there, it wasn't much modification. You know, artists weren't really deviating from that. He said, in other words, you didn't get what you could call realistic representations of the Orient, either in literature or in painting or in music or any of the arts. So, you know, this is something that we could look at a lot of Western art uh, for examples of. Um, It's, you know, I don't think we're trying to say that Conrad is the worst offender or the only person who did this. Um, I think it's much more interesting to look at it as something that we see many, many examples of.
0: Yeah, well, and it makes me think also just how important it is that while we read and enjoy and learn from so many of these texts like Lord Jim, Um, that we make sure that we are also seeking out more realistic depictions, or um, texts and art that are actually from these places, uh, and from a wide variety of places from the people who actually are of those places and live there and um, who would consider those places their home and their connection, (laughs) their love and trust, um, so that you don't end up kind of pigeonholing that whole part of the world.
1: Right, and that's especially difficult when an author is giving you a fictionalized location.
0: Yeah, well, you know, what struck me is um, there's another work of fiction that I've enjoyed, um, the show The West Wing, um, and that actually has an entire podcast to go with it, episode by episode. Um, And at one point, they use a fictionalized West African country that they call Kundu Um, to explore a lot of issues and a war and whatnot. And I can see why they did that, because it's a lot easier to explore issues in fiction than in reality. And that was a show that did try to hew somewhat close to reality or, you know, um, real countries, real issues, paralleling things that may have happened to explore them. Um, But what I found really interesting was actually in the podcast that went alongside that, the West Wing Weekly, um, they spoke um, even with one of the writers about that choice and really ultimately um, both the hosts and the writer agreeing that that may have been a mistake, that it is kind of an easy way out. Um, And it's one thing if you're dealing with a very fictionalized world to have a very fictional place. But that show was dealing with a fairly um, realistic world, or one where, you know, we're seeing a lot of people that we recognize as close parallels to, or we're dealing with countries that are also real countries. Um, And in Lord Jim, we're seeing countries that are real and events that are very close to their historical parallels. Um, And it looks like Edward Said also finds that Conrad uses a lot of his autobiography um, in fiction anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is maybe not a great thing to do. Um, I can see why it's appealing, why you would do it. It makes some sense, but it may be a bit of a cop-out.
1: Interesting. Well, I love that you found a modern parallel for that. And I really do need to get caught up on my West Wing. And by caught up, I mean watch any of it. So...
0: (laughs) It is fascinating. You know, it's uh, one particular take, um, but I think that a lot of people who watch it find it really fun and interesting.
1: Well, I'll be on the lookout for that episode specifically. So I I did want to, because a lot of the articles we've discussed previously have been available through JSTOR, the path to getting to this ebook, if you're looking to read it, is a little bit different. Um, So can we can we talk about how that works?
0: Yeah, please do. Where did you find this?
1: Great. So this is available through our EBSCO host ebook collections. And I was actually just able to use our C search tool to okay, find so it. That's,
0: that's just the search bar right on the homepage of the library. Yeah.
1: Yep. If you start at library.mma.edu and you um, can search the book, title of the book in that C search, and it will take you to our EBSCO database, and you'll be able to read that. Um, you can read the, the PDF and you can hopefully search the text for specific terms.
0: Okay, yeah, and I think um, those EBSCO eBooks, it's also possible to kind of check them out and um, read them on some free Adobe software. Um, That's mostly useful if you're trying to access them offline, but I actually have a video all about how to access books in this way. Um, So I'll include a link to that in the show notes, along with the citation, um, so people have all those tools at their fingertips.
1: Wonderful. So yeah, the title of that book, again, is Joseph Conrad and the Fiction of Autobiography. And, you know, I really hope that um, for some of our readers, if you're not familiar with Saeed's work, that you take this as an opportunity to learn a little bit about uh, his scholarship, because it is absolutely fascinating.
0: Well, thank you so much, Lauren. I know this is kind of a longer conversation than most of the ones we have. um, And we've dug in a little bit more to the content of the text um, and some analysis of it even. Um, And I hope that this is something that sparks some ideas for people, whether you agree with our analysis or take a different take. Um, I think that this is a great thing to, to think more about.
1: Wonderful, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it.
0: My pleasure, see you next week. And now we return to this installment of Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 23 He did not return till next morning. He had been kept to dinner and for the night. There never had been such a wonderful man as Mr. Stein. He had in his pocket a letter for Cornelius, the Johnny who's going to get the sack, he explained, with a momentary drop in his elation, And he exhibited with glee a silver ring such as natives use worn down very thin and showing faint traces of chasing this was his introduction to an old chap called Doraman, one of the principal men out there a big pot who had been mr stein's friend in that country where he had all these adventures mr stein called him war comrade war comrade was good wasn't it and didn't mr stein speak english wonderfully well Said he had learned it in Celebes, of all places. That was awfully funny, was it not? He did speak with an accent, a twang. Did I notice? That chap Dora had given him the ring. They had exchanged presents when they parted for the last time. Sort of promising eternal friendship. He called it fine, did I not? They had to make a dash for dear life out of the country when that Mohammed, Mohammed what's-his-name, had been killed. I knew the story, of course. Seemed a beastly shame, didn't it? He ran on like this, forgetting his plate with a knife and fork in hand he had found me at Tiffin, slightly flushed and with his eyes darkened many shades, which was with him a sign of excitement. The ring was a sort of credential. It's like something you read of in books, he threw in appreciatively, and Dorriman would do his best for him. Mr. Stein had been the means of saving that chap's life on some occasion, purely by accident, Mr. Stein had said, but he, Jim, had his own opinion about that. Mr. Stein was just the man to look out for such accidents. No matter, accident or purpose, this would serve his turn immensely. Hoped to goodness, the jolly old beggar had not gone off the hooks meantime. Mr. Stein could not tell. There had been no news for more than a year. They were kicking up no end of an all-fired row amongst themselves, and the river was closed. Jolly awkward this, but no fear. He would manage to find a crack to get in. He impressed, almost frightened me with his elated rattle, He was voluble like a youngster on the eve of a long holiday with a prospect of delightful scrapes, and such an attitude of mind in a grown man and in this connection had in it something phenomenal, a little mad, dangerous, unsafe. I was on the point of entreating him to take things seriously when he dropped his knife and fork he had begun eating, or rather swallowing food, as it were, unconsciously, and began a search all round his plate. The ring, the ring, where the devil? Ah, here it was. He closed his big hand on it, and tried all his pockets one after another. Jove wouldn't do to lose the thing. He meditated gravely over his fist. Had it, would hang the Bali affair around his neck, and he proceeded to do this immediately, producing a string, which looked like a bit of cotton shoelace, for the purpose. There, that would do the trick. It would be the deuce if—he seemed to catch sight of my face for the first time, and it steadied him a little— I probably didn't realize he said with a naive gravity how much importance he attached to that token it meant a friend and it is a good thing to have a friend he knew something about that he nodded at me expressively but before my disclaiming gesture he leaned his head on his hand and for a while sat silent playing thoughtfully with the bread crumbs on the cloth slam the door that was jolly well put he cried and jumping up began to pace the room reminding me by the set of the shoulders, the turn of his head, the headlong and uneven stride, of that night when he had paced thus, confessing, explaining, what you will, but in the last instance, living, living before me, under his own little cloud, with all his unconscious subtlety which could draw consolation from the very source of sorrow. It was the same mood, the same and different, like a fickle companion that today guiding you on the true path, with the same eyes, the same step, the same impulse, Tomorrow will lead you hopelessly astray. His tread was assured. His straying, darkened eyes seemed to search the room for something. One of his footfalls somehow sounded louder than the other, the fault of his boots, probably, and gave a curious impression of an invisible halt in his gait. One of his hands was rammed deep into his trouser's pocket. The other waved suddenly above his head. Slam the door, he shouted. I've been waiting for that. I'll show yet. I'll. I'm ready for any confounded thing. I've been dreaming of it. Jove, get out of this. Jove, this is the luck at last. You wait. I'll. he tossed his head fearlessly, and I confess that for the first and last time in our acquaintance, I perceived myself unexpectedly to be thoroughly sick of him. Why these vaporings? He was stumping about the room, flourishing his arm absurdly, and now and then feeling on his breast for the ring under his clothes. Where was the sense of such exaltation in a man appointed to be a trading clerk, and in a place where there was no trade at that? Why hurl defiance at the universe? This was not a proper frame of mind to approach any undertaking. An improper frame of mind not only for him, I said, but for any man. He stood still over me. Did I think so? he asked, by no means subdued, and with a smile in which I seemed to detect suddenly something insolent. But then, I am twenty years his senior. Youth is insolent. It is its right, its necessity. It has got to assert itself, and all assertion in this world of doubts is a defiance, is an insolence. He went off into a far corner, and coming back, he, figuratively speaking, turned to rend me. I spoke like that because I, even I, who had been no end kind to him, even I remembered, remembered against him, what... What had happened. And what about the others? The... the world? Where's the wonder he wanted to get out, meant to get out, meant to stay out, by heavens? And I talked about proper frames of mind. It is not I or the world who remember, I shouted. It is you, you who remember. He did not flinch, and went on with heat. Forget everything, everybody, everybody. His voice fell. But you, he added, "'Yes, me too, if it would help,' I said, also in a low tone. After this we remained silent and languid for a time, as if exhausted. Then he began again, composedly, and told me that Mr. Stein had instructed him to wait for a month or so, to see whether it was possible for him to remain, before he began building a new house for himself, so as to avoid vain expense. He did make use of funny expressions, Stein did. Vain expense was good. Remain? Why, of course. He would hang on. Let him only get in, that's all. He would answer for it. He would remain. Never get out. It was easy enough to remain. Don't be foolhardy, I said, rendered uneasy by his threatening tone. If you only live long enough, you will want to come back. Come back to what? he asked absently, with his eyes fixed upon the face of a clock on the wall. I was silent for a while. Is it to be never, then? I said. Never, he repeated, dreamily without looking at me, and then flew into sudden activity. Jove, two o'clock, and I sail at four. It was true. A brigantine of Stein's was leaving for the westward that afternoon, and he had been instructed to take his passage in her, only no orders to delay the sailing had been given. I suppose Stein forgot. He made a rush to get his things while I went aboard my ship, where he promised to call on his way to the outer roadstead. He turned up accordingly, in a great hurry, and with a small leather valise in his hand. This wouldn't do, and I offered him an old tin trunk of mine supposed to be watertight, or at least damp tight. He effaced the transfer by the simple process of shooting out the contents of his valise as he would empty a sack of wheat. I saw three books in the tumble, two small and dark covers, and a thick green and gold volume, a half crown complete Shakespeare. You read this? I asked. Yes, best thing to cheer up a fellow, he said hastily. I was struck by this appreciation. But there was no time for Shakespearean talk. A heavy revolver and two small boxes of cartridges were lying on the cuddy table. Pray take this, I said. It may help you to remain. No sooner were these words out of my mouth than I perceived what grim meaning they could bear. May help you get in, I corrected myself remorsefully. He, however, was not troubled by obscure meanings. He thanked me effusively and bolted out, calling good-bye over his shoulder. I heard his voice through the ship's side, urging his boatmen to give way, and looking out of the stern port, I saw the boat rounding under the counter. He sat in her leaning forward, exciting his men with voice and gestures, and as he had kept the revolver in his hand and seemed to be presenting it at their heads, I shall never forget the scared faces of the four Javanese, and the frantic swing of their stroke which snatched that vision from under my eyes. Then, turning away, the first thing I saw were the two boxes of cartridges on the cuddy table. He had forgotten to take them. I ordered my gig manned at once, but Jim's rowers, under the impression that their lives hung on a thread while they had that madman in their boat, made such excellent time that before I had traversed half the distance between the two vessels, I caught sight of him clambering over the rail, and of his box being passed up. All the brigantine's canvas was loose, her mainsail was set, and the windlass was just beginning to clink as I stepped upon her deck. Her master, a dapper little half-caste of forty or so, in a blue flannel suit with lively eyes, his round face the color of lemon peel, and with a thin little black mustache drooping on each side of his thick, dark lips, came forward smirking. He turned out, notwithstanding his self-satisfied and cheery exterior, to be of a careworn temperament. In answer to a remark of mine, while Jim had gone below for a moment, he said, "'Oh, yes, Paterson. "'He was going to carry the gentleman to the mouth of the river, "'but would never ascend. "'His flowing English seemed to be derived from a dictionary "'compiled by a lunatic. "'Had Mr. Stein desired him to ascend, "'he would have reverentially "'I think he wanted to say respectfully, but devil only knows, "'reverentially made objects for the safety of properties. "'If disregarded, he would have presented resignation to quit. Twelve months ago he had made his last voyage there, and though Mr. Cornelius propitiated many offertories to Mr. Raja Alang and the principal populations on conditions which made the trade a snare and ashes in the mouth, yet his ship had been fired upon from the woods by irresponsive parties all the way down the river, which, causing his crew from exposure to limb to remain silent in hidings, the brigantine was nearly stranded on a sandbank at the bar, where she would have been perishable beyond the act of man. The angry disgust at the recollection, the pride of his fluency to which he turned an attentive ear, struggled for the possession of his broad, simple face. He scowled and beamed at me, and watched with satisfaction the undeniable effect of his phraseology. Dark frowns ran swiftly over the placid sea, and the brigantine, with her foretopsail to the mast and her main boom amidships, seemed bewildered amongst the cat's paws. He told me further, gnashing his teeth, that the rajah was a laughable hyena can't imagine how he got hold of hyenas while somebody else was many times falser than the weapons of a crocodile keeping one eye on the movements of his crew forward he let loose his volubility comparing the place to a cage of beasts made ravenous by long impenitence i fancy he meant impunity he had no intention he cried to exhibit himself to be made attached purposefully to robbery the long-drawn whales giving the time for the pull of the men catting the anchor, came to an end, and he lowered his voice. "'Plenty too much enough of Patisan,' he concluded with energy. I heard afterwards he had been so indiscreet as to get himself tied up by the neck with a rattan halter to a post planted in the middle of a mud hole before the Rajah's house. He spent the best part of a day and a whole night in that unwholesome situation, but there is every reason to believe the thing had been meant as a sort of joke.' He brooded for a while over that horrid memory, I suppose, and then addressed in a quarrelsome tone the man coming aft to the helm. When he turned to me again, it was to speak judicially, without passion. He would take the gentleman to the mouth of the river at Batu Kring, Pattison town being situated internally, he remarked, thirty miles. But in his eyes he continued, a tone of bored, weary conviction replacing his previous voluble delivery. The gentleman was already in the similitude of a corpse. "'What? What do you say?' I asked. He assumed a startlingly ferocious demeanour, and imitated to perfection the act of stabbing from behind. "'Already like the body of one departed,' he explained, with the insufferably conceited air of his kind after what they imagine a display of cleverness. Behind him I perceived Jim smiling silently at me, and with a raised hand checking the exclamation on my lips. Then, while the half-caste, bursting with importance, shouted his orders, while the yard swung creaking and the heavy boom came surging over, Jim and I, alone as it were, to leeward of the mainsail, clasped each other's hands and exchanged the last hurried words. My heart was freed from that dull resentment which had existed side by side with interest in his fate. The absurd chatter of the half-caste had given more reality to the miserable dangers of his path than Stein's careful statements." On that occasion, the sort of formality that had been always present in our intercourse vanished from our speech. I believe I called him, dear boy, and he tacked on the words, old man, to some half-uttered expression of gratitude, as though his risks set off against my years had made us more equal in age and in feeling. There was a moment of real and profound intimacy, unexpected and short-lived like a glimpse of some everlasting, of some saving truth. He exerted himself to soothe me, as though he had been the more mature of the two. "'All right, all right,' he said rapidly and with feeling. "'I promise to take care of myself. "'Yes, I won't take any risks. "'Not a single blessed risk. "'Of course not. "'I mean to hang out. "'Don't you worry. "'Jove, I feel as if nothing could touch me. "'Why, this is luck from the word go. "'I wouldn't spoil such a magnificent chance.' "'A magnificent chance. "'Well, it was magnificent.' but chances are what men make them, and how was I to know? As he had said, even I, even I remembered his his misfortune against him. It was true, and the best thing for him was to go. My gig had dropped in the wake of the brigantine, and I saw him aft detached upon the light of the westering sun, raising his cap high above his head. I heard an indistinct shout, "'You shall hear of me!' of me or from me, I don't know which. I think it must have been of me. My eyes were too dazzled by the glitter of the sea below his feet to see him clearly. I am fated never to see him clearly. But I can assure you no man could have appeared less in the similitude of a corpse, as that half-caste croaker had put it. I could see the little wretch's face, the shape and color of a ripe pumpkin, poked out somewhere under Jim's elbow. He, too, raised his arm as if for a downward thrust, absent omen. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Lord Jim. As a reminder, please check our show notes for the link to the text, as well as information on related reading. This episode was read and produced by me, and Dyer. Article recommendations and graphics by Lauren Gargani. Special thanks to Emily Baer. Music by Chad Crouch.